At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back from Rio to talk about why the real Olympic story begins now. We are also going to talk about what could in time go down as the most historically important gold medal from these games, the triumph of South African 800-meter champ Castor Semenya. Semenya is going to have to peel off the back of Nian Saba shortly. She does that now. She's normally got a devastating kick when she goes, and goes she does. And she goes from two metres behind to two metres in front of the top of the lane. Semenya running for gold now in front of Nian Saba and Bishop and Wambui, but she's left the others in her wake. And Kasta Semenya is going to do what most people thought she would do in the 800, and she runs away and wins it brilliantly. She has destroyed them in the last 200 metres. And that was the way that a lot of people thought she would become the Olympic champion. And to explain the Semenya drama, which involves sex testing, gender policing, and a whole host of issues which we will be talking about for decades. Our first guest is a senior research scholar at the Center for Biomedical Ethics at Stanford University. Her research on sex testing policies has been written up in outlets like the New York Times and The Guardian, and she is at work on a new book with Rebecca Jordan Young called T, The Unauthorized Biography. And that's not about Mr. T, that's about testosterone and the many scientific and social identities of testosterone in the world of sports. Her name is Katrina Carcasis. For our listeners who are new to this topic, can you walk us through what Castor Semenya has had to confront and overcome en route to winning that 800-meter gold medal? Yeah, you know, it's tragic to me because this is an athlete who, since the time that her name was leaked to the press as being investigated in the 2009 Berlin World Championships, and her name was leaked by the IAAF, has been ostracized by nearly everyone, and it's been unrelenting for seven years. And just to be clear, all because of an elevated testosterone level. Is that correct? Well, that's the thing. We don't know. So one of the great disservices and injustices to her is the degree of speculation going on about her body. Mm. And the way that that gets dissected and scrutinized and stated as fact in the media. So what I would love for your listeners to know is that Castor Semenya has never revealed anything about her body. Not that she has hyperandrogenism, not that she has an intersex trait. They're not the same thing. Not what her agreement was that allowed her to return to competition in 2010. And so... People state as fact any number of things about her physiology, about what she did in order to continue competing, none of which has been confirmed by either the IAAF or by her. Nevertheless, people are going forward 
making all kinds of assumptions and saying really grotesque things, like dehumanizing things about these athletes. And one of the things, Dave, I know you're always on top of this, so let's go there. When one begins to talk about the way that race enters this picture, it makes many, many people deeply uncomfortable, including some making charges that it's intellectually lazy to do that. Someone responded to the Guardian piece that I had exported American racial politics into the UK and they didn't need my American racial politics. But I actually argue that it's lazy and irresponsible, you know, not to consider race. And it's actually the harder thing to do to understand how race operates in these debates. It's so interesting because they're saying to you not to export those politics. And that to me is sort of like accusing the person who yells fire of arson, because it's not like there isn't a long history in the International Olympic Committee of basically saying that black women are not, quote unquote, real women or Mm. should not be seen as real women. I mean, I think in 1956, an IOC official said that there should be a separate events for for women of African descent. And and I think the way he put it was like a hermaphroditic category for black women. And so that's from the IOC. And then maybe you could flush some of this out, but it's my understanding that when like Castor Semenya has received support at home in South Africa, support from people like Winnie Mandela, mm-hmm. rallies in defense of her, people in South Africa who see this as being explicitly yeah. an issue of racism, not an issue of biology or debates about T levels, but but explicitly an issue about white athletes who don't like that they're losing to a black athlete and are throwing down with a charge that is decades old about black women not being real women. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Dave, because there have been peak moments, if you will, when policies aimed at policing women's eligibility, right? There's a very long history of this, of policing only women's eligibility, right? Men are only required to have legal sex, but women have been required to undergo various biological and physiological tests and exams in order to actually be eligible or remain eligible. So the testosterone policy is the latest iteration of that. But the resurgence, if you will, in the 90s happens to coincide at a moment when black and brown women from the global south started to become more dominant in middle distance and long distance running events. So I'm not saying that the policies came back fiercely. In fact, they've never been gone. I'm not saying it's exclusively due to that, but I'm saying that's part of the soup and Mm. that there is a lot of anxiety, I think, around dominance because there are a lot of consequences if you can't meddle in these particular events. And Madeline Pape, who raced against the Menion, is someone that had very much the views that were on exhibit in Rio of the athletes who came in fourth, fifth, and sixth has since changed her tune because of an understanding of the way in which this is complex, aside from the fact of just yelling unfairness because of someone's biology. So just to be clear about this for our listeners, these runners who have concerns about Semenya's biology, who've raised complaints about Semenya's biology, none of this is based in established fact about her being intersex or hyperandrogenism, like it's all based on a kind of assumption that she must be these things because she is superior on the track. Is that correct? 
That's absolutely part of what's going on here. So I believe that she's being punished for one, not presenting as feminine enough, and also for being an extraordinary athlete who's dominant. And, you know, all one has to do is look at the race and look at her outfit to understand that she's choosing to present in her own way. And it's a decidedly less feminine way than the women running right next to her. But here's the issue, and it's why it's unfortunate that the whole policy is being pinned on her. Uh, a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what this policy claims. So I think we should get this out of the way. Please. The policy doesn't talk about any competitive advantage. What it says is that women with hyperandrogenism, meaning naturally high testosterone, have male typical advantage over women with lower levels. Not any advantage, right? So people start quibbling and tweet at me about, well, there's a one one hundredth of a second difference, and that could be due to testosterone. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the IAAF claims that women with naturally high T would basically be turning in male time. And anybody who does not understand the science can very simply look up the women's times and the male times and understand that though there are some athletes who may be dominant in their running events, they're nowhere near male times. And that the 10 to 12% performance difference that you see across most track and field events, and is also the difference, by the way, between Paula Radcliffe and the best male marathoner, there's actually a 10% difference between Radcliffe and the best male time in marathon. There's a 12% difference roughly between Semenya and the best 800 meter performance. That's all in line with one what would expect. And so you can't argue that these women have male typical advantage, and that is what the policy is based on. So it's also why policymakers themselves have said in the New York Times and other places, they can't possibly come back with the evidence that's needed in order to support this policy because <laughs> no one is turning in male typical time. Right. So the other part of this story, which is, I think, shocking and that people may not realize, is that you have this International Olympic Committee, IAAF structure that is very, very wary about performance enhancing drugs and about putting anything mm -hmm. inside your body that's not approved. And yet they wanted Castor Semenya as a precondition to racing. They wanted her to take pills to artificially lower the testosterone in her body, and then that was struck down, but that was a demand put on her. Is that correct? Yeah, there are actually two That policy is kind of shocking to me. That, that it, it gets worse. Wait till you hear this. So there have been women that have complied with the policy by undergoing surgery. So there's two ways to lower testosterone, surgery or drugs. For the women who underwent surgery, it squashes your testosterone levels so low, it's basically at zero. And that's not healthy for anyone. People don't understand often that testosterone is actually necessary for everyone's physiological functioning because it affects so many organs in the body. You know, brain, heart, liver, bone. It's a right. critical hormone. So when you take it that low, you actually put people at health risk. So the IAAF, and I want to state this slowly and clearly, has granted therapeutic use exemptions to women with hyperandrogenism to supplement, meaning dope, with testosterone 
after complying with the policy because oh of the recognition that you need testosterone to function well. Is there anything in men's sports that compares to this? Like the idea of deeply invasive testing into people's hormonal levels and then trying to adjust those levels so they go within an acceptable framework? No, there, there's nothing comparable. I mean, they do, so everyone has to go under, undergo doping screens. And that's how they find these higher than typical levels. But for men, and what's also interesting is that men's levels vary even more widely than women's. So there's a greater degree of, of variability in men's testosterone levels than what you actually find in women's. And yet no one cries unfair for the men who are at the way top with the T levels. But with men, what happens is, you know, you find the atypical level. You do a test, the technology's there and it's been there and it's undisputed. You find out it's natural and the case is closed. What happens for women and what's happened for women is very different. Finding that the level is natural doesn't end the investigation. It actually begins it. Oh. So then there are gynecological exams. There are is chromosomal testing, uh, scans for internal reproductive organs. And all of that is done to assess sex traits, which is why... People who have examined these policies more closely say that it's no different than the prior sex testing policies. Yeah, I'm going to stop you right there, Katrina, because you just mentioned um, the old sex testing. And I assume you mean the old Cold War sex testing that was the standard policy of the International Olympic Committee. I bet a lot of people don't know about that, the parading naked Mm -hmm. in front of doctors. Can you just describe a little bit about what it was like to be a female athlete and when these practices stopped? Yeah. So from the time that women have entered elite competition, they've been scrutinized to the extent that they've had different kinds of eligibility criteria than men. And it's based on this idea that women are vulnerable and in need of protection. And so whether one is protecting that category from male imposters, which has been, you know, argued at certain points, or certain ideas about female super competitors, which is what I think we're dealing with now, women have had to have, you know, undergo sort of various levels of examinations. And these have sometimes included physical exams, gynecological exams to prove that they're women. The National Olympic Committee and other governing bodies have required what they call certificates of femininity in order for women to compete. Then they move to chromosomal testing. Then they move to something called SRY testing. And they claim that they abandoned this kind of scrutiny and eligibility criteria in the 90s. But that isn't true. Just to interrupt you again, just because I need people to understand that you just said the 90s. Because it sounds like something like the 1890s? The 1940s? I mean, it's stunning to me because it comes down to, I guess, in in legal terms, an undue burden. Like, hey, if you want to be an Olympic athlete and you happen to be female, here is the undue burden that you are going to have to face to pursue your Olympic dreams. Always. And they've never been gone. So when I say 90s, I mean 1990s early for the IAAF 91 and and near the end of the decade for the IOC, but they never abandoned them. So what they always did was keep a reserve clause that allowed them to investigate women that they deemed suspicious. 
And so one of the things that people miss is that Semenya was investigated during the period in which the policies were supposedly abandoned, which was 2009. We get the testosterone policy in 2011, but I interviewed a very, very high-level policymaker, and he said, this testosterone policy isn't new. We're just sort of making public what we've been doing. And so what they've been doing, right, is continuing to investigate women that they believe should be investigated because they have some doubt about them. Mm. You mentioned a word um, a couple of minutes ago that I wanted to pick out and ask you a question about because you said the word atypical. And you talked mm-hmm. about the, the idea of people being under increased scrutiny, women athletes, for being atypical when it comes to what their body naturally produces. Tell me if you just think this is the wrong way to look at it. But to me, aren't all world-class athletes biologically atypical on some level? And don't we celebrate that atypicalness when it's Shaquille O'Neal being seven feet tall, which is certainly atypical, or Michael Phelps having flipper-sized hands and feet, which of course makes him a better swimmer, and that in and of itself is atypical. It's not that either of those people don't put tremendous amounts of work into perfecting their craft, but they also have certain atypical biological traits that that allow them to max out a potential in a different kind of way than, say, five foot ten me. Is that the same kind of thing we're talking about here? I think it is. I think we're only at the beginning, really, of understanding and trying to disentangle all of the factors that go into make superior athleticism. People can have all kinds of physiological advantages that help their athleticism. And those could be any number of genes that affect athleticism, but they could also be things like height. Now, what critics say in response to that is that it doesn't police the divide between men and women, right? We don't have categories by height, but neither does this policy police the divide between men and women. What it does is create a category within a category, right? It's everyone agrees these women are women and it singles out some women for particular kinds of, you know, eligibility rules that force them to undergo medical interventions or else quit their sport. So it's not the same. You don't get people who are made ineligible because of certain physiological traits that they possess that affect their ability to perform well. Mm. And I want to ask you a question about how some of the left is writing about this and whether you mm. think and whether you think that's harmful as well because i've seen more than a few articles that are like we stand with caster semenya because we stand with all intersex athletes we stand with the lgbtq uh. community and caster semenya is a part of that and we and so what that does as we talked about earlier is it's projecting identities on caster which aren't necessarily either public or confirmed is that harmful potentially, do you think, even if people's hearts are in the right place? Yeah, I think it is. And I think, I mean, I think it's harmful. And I think everybody would understand that the right to self-identify is incredibly important, right? That no one would want their identity questioned, you know, on any number of levels, right? Whatever, we all have multiple identities. And so it's important to be very careful to not 
take the case of somebody and use it to make particular points about one's own political point. So neither Semenya nor Duty have... You're talking about Duty Chant, to be clear. Duty Chant, yeah. Yes. Who is, so I don't know Semenya, but I, knew, I do know Duty. Uh, Indian world-class runner who has faced similar issues to the ones that we're talking about here. Exactly, and whose challenge to these policies is why they've been suspended. So an incredibly courageous young woman um, who decided to uh, fight the policy. Uh, No duty chand, no gold medal for Castor Semenya? You know, I don't know if I'd go that far because, you know, Castor Semenya competed in the 2012 Olympics. And for all of the people creating these convenient narrative timelines about what they think she's done when, you know, regarding drugs and other things, that was during a time when, you know, she was supposedly complying with something. And even if we follow the conjecture that she was undertaking, you know, hormone suppressing drugs, it's important to note that these competitors that came in fourth, fifth, and, you know, sixth would not have medaled in London, even if, you know, at this moment when Semenya was supposedly on hormone-suppressing drugs. But there's no question that there are women and not just Semenya who are likely competing at these Olympics and perhaps not just in track and field who are being allowed to compete with their natural bodies and excel in whatever way is possible for them without, you know, undergoing medical intervention. And that is due to that case. And Castor Semenya, of course, in 2012 got silver. And one of the things that is not really factored into her getting silver and not gold is just the amount of scrutiny she was under as well, like the psychological factors of trying to run this race in the context of the firestorm back then being even much hotter than it was in 2016. Like we don't look at any of that as we're assessing performance. It's just trying to look for conspiratorial angles of what the IAAF was making her suppress biologically in her own body. I mean, it's it's really sick if you think about it. Yeah, well, I think what you're raising, which is a part that many people in support of this policy don't address, even the IAAF, when we went to the Court of Arbitration for Sport to argue Duty Chan's case, didn't acknowledge any harm from these policies. That's that's crazy to me that that's not a factor. It is. It's inconceivable to me. Yeah, that you can't acknowledge. And I mean harm on any level. Like, what does it even mean to be scrutinized? You know, you talk to people in other contexts, especially women athletes and female athletes. I've talked to quite a few. They're very clear on what they have done to get better. And they speak to a range of things. And that always includes something regarding the psychological preparation that one does for training. And so the amount of scrutiny that Semenya has come under, and she's sort of racing under the burden of all of that, I can't even begin to imagine. I'm getting angry tweets and horrible emails, and that's distracting enough. This woman has had an international media firestorm around her for seven years. And You know, she says in the media that she does her best to block it out. But how can you when your coach is getting, you know, requests for 30 interviews a day from the media? I mean, this is, I think you can block some out. You can't block it all out. And even if you were blocking out the media, she underwent invasive exams and scrutiny and was barred from competing for 10 months because some people said she wasn't a woman. That takes a toll. 
And also the fact that she had extra security during these Olympics. I mean, how many 800-meter runners had to have bodyguards during these Olympics? I mean, I was down there in Rio, and I saw so many of the athletes, people who aren't necessarily famous, walking among the crowds at Copacabana Beach, greeting people, wearing their jackets so people would know who they were. That was not an Olympic experience she could have. Yeah, I only learned that very, very recently, and it really saddens me. This should be a life highlight, and instead it's uh, she's got to walk in there. Absolutely. And why, again, I mean, it comes back to this idea that the burden for an entire policy is falling on an individual. I welcome debate about this. I'm happy to have disagreement, but there is no reason to center it on this athlete and I I just, I've argued this elsewhere. It's a violence to do so. It's a violence to do what exactly? Can you, can you be very clear about that? What is it a violence to do? I think it's a violence on several levels to question her identity as female, to question her right to compete in this particular Olympics. And more generally, there actually is the right to compete in the athlete's bill of rights. There's also clear articulations about the right to compete without discrimination. I think it's a violence to undergo this kind of media scrutiny where people are writing about your genitals. You know, I can't believe that we have to actually say this, but what other athlete has had their genitalia written about and their internal reproductive organs in the context of their, you know, Olympic competition? And the idea that this is okay, this is mind-blowing. To me, it's no different than if you're writing about any other female athlete and you include some remark about their genitalia. You name the athlete. It's just as inappropriate for her as it would be for all of them. And people get it when you talk about other female athletes, but they somehow think it's okay in this context. So all of that comes together to me because here's the thing, it creates exactly the kind of of fears about physical violence that you've spoken about because people feel so strongly about gender and gender binaries that they resort to gender regulating violence. And we only have to know that to know that black trans women are attacked and murdered at disproportional rates. That's because of these people turning to violence to regulate someone's identity and expression. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we apply the flip test to something. It can be very helpful because could you imagine a discussion and how that discussion honestly would be received if, say, someone said, well, this swimmer won the gold because he's well known to have a very small penis. And so there's less drag when he goes through the water. Yeah. Uh, and, and that small penis has allowed him to gain two one hundredths of a second. And boy, that may might have made the difference against this other swimmer who notoriously has got just, you know, he's got a python down there. And, you know, you're never going to be a world class swimmer when you're rocking a penis like that. Like if that was said with a straight face yeah. in Olympic discussion, like how many calls would the FCC get if that was the case? Yeah. Dave, you've hit on something that's not terribly well known about this issue, which is One of the reasons that certain athletes are under scrutiny is that people assume they can read testosterone on the body, and they very quickly go from looking at people's gender presentation, right, what they wear, their hair, so they read surface masculinities as signs of some deeper masculinity or maleness. So what policymakers have suggested, they did this in 2012, right before the London Olympics, 
they actually said that what they wanted to do was institute a gynecological exam as part of the athlete's pre-participation health exam. Why? Because they believe that they can route out the women with high T by assessing their clitoral size. This was said at an international medical meeting. This is, you know, not not secret. And so what they want to do is use this sort of gauge of clitoral size as a sign of responsiveness to testosterone, make women undergo it. So basically, we're going back to the so-called nude parades, right, of the 60s, and pull those women out for further investigation. I mean, not only is that medically and scientifically flawed for any number of reasons I won't go into, but it's nothing but sexual harassment and scrutiny in order to think that that's something that's even appropriate. It's 2016. Has the media coverage on Castor been better, mm. worse, or the same than, six, than, than, say, four years ago, five years ago, six years ago? I, I have strong mm-hmm. opinions about it, but depending on the day you ask me, mm-hmm. I might have a different opinion <laughs> about it. On whole, I think it's just as bad and hasn't hasn't improved. There is no question that there are really wonderful, smart people who are being incredibly careful when writing about this. And I've seen some great examples of that this time around. But on balance, I think it's been absolutely horrible. The coverage now in 2016 looks the same to me as it was in 2012 and the same that it was in 2009. You can read articles from 2009 and think they were published now. And I think the reason for this is that people have a lot of confusion about sex and sex traits. They have a lot of confusion about gender. And testosterone does a lot of heavy cultural work, right, for us in this particular debate. People assume it's a male sex hormone. They assume Mm -hmm. it doesn't belong in women. They assume that they can tell when a woman has, quote unquote, too much. And they assume that it's responsible for all things manly and jet fuel for athleticism. So when you put all of that together, we've got a really potent mix of things that elicits a lot of strong feelings. But it also elicits a lot of ideas that people are experts about these things without really knowing anything. Um, Everybody thinks they know where the line is between men and women. Everybody thinks they know what testosterone does. And that's in the absence of a lot of deep and careful knowledge about these things. So it makes talking about this incredibly hard because you're arguing against a lot of folk wisdom. I think a strong case could be made if we had an honest media culture that was really looking at obstacles put in front of athletes, whether those obstacles are cultural, sociological, economical, and the athlete's ability to overcome those obstacles and win that gold medal, I think Castor Semenya is the athlete of the 2016 games. Would you agree or disagree with that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't know everyone's history, but what she has overcome and the degree of scrutiny is just incredible, including the conditions under which she's come forth from the point of being a small child. One of the things that people don't think about is the way that fairness is not simply aligned along physiological factors. The reason that South Africa 
I believe, only got 10 gold medals and the U.S. got, you know, dozens. It's not because we have superior physiologic, you know, athletes alone, right? There are a lot of other factors that go into that and people don't consider that. So what she's overcome in terms of just even the socioeconomic resources available to her to get to the level that she's gotten to is extraordinary. Never mind the scrutiny. Katrina Carcasis, thanks so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. Oh, Dave, thank you. And your Twitter name is? At Carcasis. At Carcasis. That's K-A-R-K-A-Z-I-S. That was Katrina Carcasis, and we are going to have a link to the Guardian article that she just wrote about Castor Semenya in the description of this podcast. And now for some choice words. This is an article I just wrote for thenation.com. If you want to follow along, see where I deviate as I talk about this, there is a link at edgeofsportspodcast.com. So this is called Now That the Games Are Over, The Real Olympic Drama Begins in Rio. So let's start with some very choice words from Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee. This is something that Thomas Bach actually said in the last week. And I'm going to try to do an impression of Thomas Bach so you get the full Thomas Bach flavor. I am absolutely convinced that history will talk of the Rio de Janeiro before the Games and the much better Rio de Janeiro after the Olympic Games. Ah, 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 ah. The laugh was mine. Mr. Bach is delusional, but he is correct about one thing. People will talk about Rio as a city before and after the Olympics. It just won't be the conversation of his fantasies conjured inside his Olympic-sized bubble. Now the real story starts in Rio. Now that the 2016 Games have been completed, with the most discussed drama being empty seats and the lies of an overprivileged swimmer, the real story begins. The story of how badly the Olympics will end up warping the city itself. For months, Rio has been the subject of international fascination in the Western media. This idea of a magical city on the coast, on the precipice of an Olympic-sized catastrophe, with the whole world watching. Journalists looked agape at the 2016 Olympic hosts wrestling with the impeachment-slash-coup of their president, the country's worst economic crisis in decades, a massive outbreak of the Zika virus, water judged to be loaded with more toxins than a Jersey swamp, and shocking levels of police violence. The media assumed that the narrative would end just this side of Armageddon, and frankly, it seemed like they were eating popcorn just waiting for the cataclysmic Jerry Bruckheimer-style explosion to arrive. Yet Rio did it. They made it work with the help of the hard, thankless labor of thousands of people building the facilities in hyper-exploitative conditions and directing visitors throughout the city. They pulled off the games without the collapse of a stadium, mass waterborne illness, or a widely speculated upon terror attack. And Brazil even won some gold in the bargain, crowned the best in the world at two of the country's most important sports, men's soccer and men's volleyball. And the nation's most important and visible Olympic hero even hailed from Rio's own city of God favela, gold medalist Judica Rafaela Silva. It's almost Olympic City as Horatio Alger story, and will no doubt be written as such. 
Rio may have done it with scotch tape, smoke, and mirrors, but gosh darn it, they hosted the damn Olympics. Yet the story isn't over. The full story goes beyond medals. It's a story that is not only about the social cost of these games, the debt, displacement, and militarization that went into staging the spectacle, but the economic cost as well. The second half of Rio's Olympic story is predicated on a simple question. How are all the bills from 2016 going to be paid without enraging the masses of Rio and beyond who spent these Olympics with their faces pressed up against the glass of a global party? It's not merely that the Olympics were over budget. There's never been an Olympics that could say otherwise. But the Rio Olympics came in at 51% over budget in the context of the nation's most protracted economic crisis since the Great Depression. Thomas Bach, the head of the International Olympic Committee, said that the Rio Games used, quote, no public funds, end quote. A manifestly outrageous lie, and yet only one in his parade of delusional statements as the Games came to a close. The Rio Olympic Committee, which already received a $900 million bailout in June, has applied for more bailout funds. The Paralympics are widely reported to be truncated because the well is dry and the city just devoted an additional $46 million to make sure they could even be staged. Meanwhile, the Olympics may not only have caused displacement, but set the stage for an even wider grab of Rio's top-end real estate. This wider land grab will play out almost immediately as the area which housed the Olympic Village is now set to be developed by 92-year-old billionaire slash real estate developer slash part-time bond villain Carlos Carvalho, whose political connections and contempt for the poor are legendary. Additionally, a favela called Horto, H-O-R-T-O, people can look it up, which has been a community for over 200 years and sits on the edge of Rio's remarkable botanical gardens, is about to be displaced, with over 600 families given 90 days to vacate. As pressures on Rio's favelas increase, the city's epidemic police violence, one in five homicides in Rio last year were committed by law enforcement, is not going to magically disappear with the Olympics. And most officials with whom I spoke, including the mayor, said that the violence is less related to the Olympics than to the absence of funds for community policing. Having just returned from Rio, I can write with confidence that the mood in the streets is not anger or compliance or celebration. It's apprehension. It's apprehension over what is going to happen after the international media leave to chase the next story. And it's apprehension about a city where real estate has values commensurate with the Bay Area of the United States, yet poverty stalks families who just a few short years ago felt like their future was bright. As one woman, a teacher named Maria, said to me, Brazilians are of two minds. There's the disapproval of the event, not of the sport. People are supporting the sports. But when you live here in Rio, things have gotten more expensive. It's very difficult to be living in the city at the moment and coupled with all of the problems that the city is facing. But Brazilians do have this ability to differentiate between the games and what's happening. It's the what's happening that should scare everyone who cares about this city. It's the what's happening that should be a call to arms for every member of the media who practiced journalism in Rio and then left for home. This is the rest of the Rio story. It's a story about the people who hosted the Olympics under impossible conditions, only to find that the games were staged on their backs. The story will be about how Rio continues to buckle, or how it straightens its spine.
speaking of straightening one's spine, the Just Stand Up Award this week goes to a true profile in courage. That would be marathon silver medalist Faisa Lilesa. For those who have not seen it, Lilesa held his arms over his head, wrist-crossed, as he finished second at the Olympic marathon on Sunday. In a gesture of support for members of his Oromo tribe, who have been protesting at government plans to relocate their farmland and expand the capital city of Addis Ababa. Talk about a land grab. Now, Lilesa made the gesture again in front of the world's media during the press conference later in the day. This was an audacious message of defiance to Ethiopia's ruling party, the EPRDF, which is facing the most widespread protest against its rule since it came to power in 1991. It was an act of solidarity not only with the Oromo people, but with the Amhara people, 400 of whom have been killed and thousands arrested since December of last year, as the efforts to expand the capital and displace people from their land continues. Lileso was asked the question about whether he was worried that he would be stripped of his silver medal for making a political statement, which, of course, athletes are not allowed to do according to Olympic bylaws. And this is what he said. He said, I cannot do anything about that. This was my feeling. I have a big problem in my country, and it is very dangerous to make a protest in my country. So he took it to the Olympics. Now, although Ethiopian officials have now denied it officially, Many human rights observers, Amnesty International, feel like Lilesa's life is now at risk. His family's life is at risk if he returns home. There's even a crowdfunding site to help his family relocate. There's a terrific article in New African Magazine right now, which we'll have a link to at the bottom of this podcast. And I'm going to read a quote by the author of that piece, uh, Dr. Fikri Jesus Amahazian. And this is what Dr. Amahazian said. He said, quote, Although the authoritarian Ethiopian government has attempted to forcibly crush the protests and rules the country through the politics of fear, Lilesa's gesture embodies strength, hope, courage, solidarity, and defiance, while poignantly illustrating the broader socio-political significance of sport. Wow. In the tradition of Tommy Smith, in the tradition of John Carlos, we now have Fiesa Lilesa. And now let's hear from our listeners at Edge of Sports, their answer to the question of the week. The question of the week was a pretty basic one. If you heard the Olympics were coming to your town, you got two paths. You can either be somebody who protests the Olympics and says, oh, hell no, not in my town. Or you could be someone who actually volunteers. In Rio, I saw this. Thousands of volunteers, people who were just so excited that the Olympics were going to be there and they wanted to be part of the action. What would you do if the Olympics were coming to your town? Hi, Dave. This is Fiona. I'm just so disgusted by the amount of money that is spent for the Olympics. I think the fallout for the local communities is too high of a price, and I wish that there was another way to do it. My name is Caleb. My hometown, Atlanta, hosted the Olympics once. Every time I'm in downtown Atlanta, I see the now empty venues that were built for the Olympics. And I see the brand new stadiums for professional Atlanta teams already getting abandoned and torn down so they can build newer ones with public money. Um, And the reasons 
for having the games, right? All these notions that it'll build civic pride or it'll boost the economy or anything like that or it'll attract attention to Atlanta. To me, that's all very ephemeral, very abstract. I don't have any real proof of that in front of me. What I have in front of me is these useless abandoned stadiums and the knowledge that there used to be people's homes there and that a lot of people had to be cleared out for all these boondoggles that now just sit empty. Thanks very much. Hey, Dave, this is James from Boston. Thankfully, the Olympics were kept out of Boston, but if they were coming, I'd tell them to get their vampire, resource-sucking, privatizing asses and go home. Or maybe we'll go to their places and try to privatize their mansions, give them a little bit of their own medicine. Anyway, enjoy the show. Take care. Thank you, Felix, Fiona, James, Ronnie, Kayla. Dang, it sounds like, it sounds like we're putting a band together. Uh, that, that was terrific. Our question for next week. I said earlier that Castor Semenya, to me, was the athlete of these Olympics. Who, for you, was the athlete of these games? For reasons either political or athletic. Just call 401-426-3343 or 401-426-EDGE. And remember, don't just say who you think the athlete of these Olympics were. Back it up. Why do you think they were the athlete of these games? Once again, call 401-426-3343 or 401-426-EDGE and let her rip. We really do love hearing from our listeners and what started as... A loose idea from my producer, Dan Bloom, has quickly become my favorite part of the show. I love hearing from y'all. Please call it in 401-426-3343 or 401-426-EDGE. For everybody out there, thanks so much for listening. We are not going to stop covering Rio as much as we branch out to look at other issues in the history of sports and politics. So excited for next week's show with gold medalist Anthony Irvin, author of the book Chasing Water. People can listen to back issues of the show at edgeofsportspodcast.com. People can follow me on Twitter or contact me at edgeofsports at slate.com or at edge of sports for dangerous dan bloom i'm dave zyron we are out of here peace get their vampire resource sucking privatizing asses and go home at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.